This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, August 16th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals last week ruled against a federal law that prohibits so-called unlawful drug users from possessing firearms. It further raises concerns about this particular blanket prohibition on a large swath of Americans who currently are prohibited from taking advantage of an individual constitutional right. Cato's Clark Neely discusses the case and the implications for the Second Amendment going forward. For the purposes of Americans who would like to secure their Second Amendment rights, what is an unlawful drug user? Right. So federal law provides that any unlawful user of a controlled substance uh, may not own a firearm. And the answer to the question is we really have no idea what that means. Different courts have disagreed about whether uh, the government has to show some persistent use over time, or if the government can show that you used uh, a drug once within the past couple of days, is that sufficient? So part of the reason why we're all over the map here is because up until fairly recently, courts just didn't take seriously uh, the Second Amendment or people's right to own a gun. And so it really wasn't important to, um, or not particularly important to get all this stuff worked out with any precision. But now, of course, that the courts are in the business of meaningfully protecting the right to own guns, all of these questions become uh, much more salient and it shines a light on what a terrible job the judiciary has done interpreting these statutes. So the Supreme Court, in a line of cases, has begun taking the Second Amendment more seriously and the guarantees of the Second Amendment as an an individual right uh, more seriously. And courts have, I think, and you tell me if I'm wrong, have begun to take the Supreme Court seriously when they say you lower courts must take this right seriously. That's right. And so when the Supreme Court starts taking a right seriously, certain things are then off the table. So for example, when it comes to the right to earn a living or your right to own property, which the Supreme Court considers to be unimportant rights, they use the term non-fundamental, but they mean unimportant The government doesn't need to have a good reason for interfering with those rights. They don't have to go about interfering with those rights in any consistent manner. They don't have to explain uh, apparent contradictions, et cetera. But when the court decides that a particular right is important enough to receive meaningful judicial protection, um, and the Second Amendment did recently get moved into that category, then the government has to have a good reason, for example, as in the case that we're going to talk about, to criminalize the possession of a gun if you use marijuana, but not if you use alcohol, for example. And that is the way federal law is written. It's perfectly fine for habitual users of alcohol to own guns. It is not fine uh, for habitual users of marijuana uh, to own guns. Up until relatively recently, the government wouldn't have to have any explanation for that inconsistency or the, the arguable inconsistency. Now the government does have to have an explanation and they are falling all over themselves because there's no good reason for making that distinction. So when you or I or anyone else wants to buy a firearm uh, as a as a matter of federal law, you have to fill out a form. And on that form is a question that asks you if essentially if you are an unlawful drug user and you are, I guess, left to piece together what that actually means. What is the fifth what did the Fifth Circuit have to say about about that. Yeah. So in this case that came down uh, last week from the Fifth Circuit, uh, United States, the Daniels, um, 
the issue kind of didn't really, the issue of what does it mean to be an unlawful user of a controlled substance didn't really come up because the defendant in this case, Patrick Daniels, was pulled over in Mississippi for driving without a license plate. Um, one of the two officers involved in the stop was actually a federal DEA agent. They noticed that there was uh, some marijuana butts in the ashtray, so they arrested him because he also had a pistol and a semi-automatic rifle in the car. And apparently, Mr. Daniels, um, I think somewhat inadvisedly, um, just admitted, yeah, I, I smoke marijuana for about 14 days a month. And that was enough to, you know, whatever a the statute means when it says an unlawful user of drugs, it certainly means that. So that issue didn't really get litigated, uh, but his defense counsel asserted a constitutional challenge to federal law and said, under the current framework that the Supreme Court has announced, the so-called Bruin framework, uh, which which is named after this case that came down about a year ago out of New York, um, the court has to look and see, do we have a historical tradition of disarming people uh, because they use certain kinds of intoxicants? And the Fifth Circuit said, no, we don't. Now, there's a tradition of disarming people who are intoxicated. That might be something you can do. But that's different than saying we're going to disarm you simply because you use intoxicants. And that was really the nub of the case. And the, and the Fifth Circuit said, we do not have a historical tradition of disarming people who use uh, intoxicants simply because they are a habitual user of that intoxicant and therefore the law is invalid. Now, this was a facial, I'm sorry, this was an as-applied challenge. So it really only applies in the case of Patrick Daniels. But the rationale will certainly uh, undermine, I think, any other prosecution under this the statute from now on in the Fifth Circuit, unless the Supreme Court reverses. Does the Fifth Circuit say, in, in saying that there is not this uh, long tradition, do they have a point? Oh, absolutely. Uh, because the, the the brewing framework that the Supreme Court announced uh, in that case a year ago says that the first step uh, from now on in, in assessing a, a Second Amendment challenge um, like this one is that you look back and you 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 see whether the challenged regulation is consistent with our history of regulating firearms, and if it's not, then the law is presumptively invalid. And uh, and this, as the court notes, there was no tradition of of disarming entire categories of people simply because they use intoxicants. Um, the only Analogous laws you would find would be laws to say that you you're not you can't be in possession of a gun when you are actually intoxicated when you are impaired, but that's not what this law, uh, section nine twenty two G three actually um, regulates. It, it it says you cannot own a gun if you use intoxicants whether you are intoxicated or not, and that's just a bridge too far. And I think I think the court is clearly right about that. Um, and and as I alluded to a moment ago, or suggested a moment ago, this distinction where where users of a not particularly harmful plant can be categorically disarmed, but not users of a much more uh, unhealthy and intoxicating uh, substance, namely alcohol. Oh, that's fine. That's just that's just a uh, that that is an inconsistency for which the government needs to have a good explanation. And again. They didn't. What have gun rights groups said about this? Because, you know, if if there are, let's say, tens of millions of Americans who use cannabis, 
you know, many of which are many of those people are using cannabis in states where it is legal. It's still illegal as a matter of federal law. So for the purposes of filling out a federal form, uh, you uh, unlawful gu- uh, drug user uh, applies to you one of these many millions of people. I mean, potentially you would think that guns rights groups would be very interested in asserting the rights of tens of millions of Americans who are otherwise disenfranchised, probably unconstitutionally, from securing that right. You would think that, and some have been. So, for example, the Firearms Policy Coalition, FPC, is uh, really good on these issues and and I think is both intellectually consistent um, and um, principled in, in their advocacy. At the other end of the spectrum, we have organizations like the National Rifle Association, the NRA, which somewhere along the lines, I think, really morphed into a kind of a, a, a political action committee that happens to be interested in guns and grifting. And um, the NRA has really been quite disgraceful um, on failing to um, maintain that kind of consistency, go to bat for the rights of all people uh, to own guns, not just somebody who looks like the average um NRA supporter. And we see this across the board, including, for example, uh, where police um, have shot and killed people for, for example, uh, answering their door with a gun in their hand because they thought there was an intruder and it turned out to be the police. Um, That's an actual case. And the NRA was disgracefully silent uh, about that uh, case. Um, And that's not the only one, um, in large measure, because it sets up this kind of tension uh, between the exercise of Second Amendment rights, which the NRA nominally supports, um, and the prerogatives uh, of police um, to shoot somebody dead simply for exercising their Second Amendment rights. And the NRA is very disinclined, let's put it that way, uh, to to be on the other side of any issue um, from law enforcement. So going forward, you said that this was an as-applied challenge, meaning it, it, it does not have immediate broad applicability but the reasoning is nonetheless very strong. So what should we expect uh, a different circuit to weigh in here? Or would the Supreme Court want to fast track this? And I know you're not exactly optimistic about how the Supreme Court would handle uh, a case like this. uh, But do you have any expectations? No. Short answer, no. Uh, the, The situation is somewhat complicated by the fact that there's another Fifth Circuit uh, decision that came down earlier this year involving um, the, the same federal statute, but a different subparagraph. Um, the, the other case involves uh, Section 922G8, which provides that anybody who is subject to a domestic violence restraining order um, is not permitted to possess a firearm. And to make a long story short, in this other case called Rahimi, the Fifth Circuit struck down that provision on the same rationale, we look back through our history, we don't see a history of disarming uh, people with domestic violence restraining orders, but that case was was facial. In other words, that case, um, the, 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 the court's decision said this particular provision is unconstitutional across the board and cannot be enforced against anybody in the Fifth Circuit. U.S. government, having lost that case in the Fifth Circuit, filed a cert petition in the Supreme Court, which granted that petition. So that case, the Rahimi case, challenging the constitutionality of the federal law that that forbids uh, the subjects of domestic violence order, uh, domestic violence restraining orders from owning guns is going to be heard by the Supreme Court. And my guess is that that 
all of the other courts who are are uh, have litigation pending um, involving similar provisions or any other related provisions um, in in Section 922G, and that would include things like uh, the the ban on people who've been convicted of a felony from owning guns and controlled uh, users of controlled substances. I think all of that's just going to go on pause until the Supreme Court hands down the Rahimi opinion, because there's definitely going to be new guidance in in that decision. And I think it's anybody's guess which way they go. There was a case years ago that I believe Antonin Scalia played sort of an important role in it. It was argued, I believe, by our friend Randy Barnett. This was about Angel Rach and her ability to use cannabis in her own state and whether or not the feds could regulate her entirely private, non-commercial cannabis operation, her growing of, of cannabis. And even though he is broadly opposed to the modern interpretation of the Commerce Clause, he went along with it. Right. That was the Gonzalez v. Raich case from 2005 and, and involved a, a profoundly, uh, two profoundly ill women who were getting some relief from the use of medical cannabis. The way they got it is that friends would grow it and give them to give it to them. So you're correct. Um, it was the question was, does Congress possess the authority under the so-called Commerce Clause, which empowers Congress to regulate commerce among the states? Does that power reach to the entirely local, non-commercial distribution of marijuana? And the Supreme Court said yes. That was a six-to-three decision with Justice Scalia providing. Um, a fifth or sixth vote, depending on how you count. And I, I suppose I would summarize the whole thing by saying um, very few things will cause ostensible originalist, textualist conservatives to abandon those principles than anything that looks like it might unravel federal drug prohibition. And that's why you're not particularly optimistic about this issue going before the high court. Yeah, I think so for two reasons. First, because the, the case that actually reached the U.S. Supreme Court does not involve uh, the, the unlawful user of controlled substances. Um, instead, it involves people who against whom a domestic violence restraining order has been issued. And that's just terrible optics. I mean, imagine who wants to be the justice that casts the deciding vote to say that the federal government can't disarm uh, people who are, you know, domestic abusers. Now, they might, because I think, frankly, that's that's probably the outcome that the Bruin framework properly applied compels, uh, but the Supreme Court is nothing if not adept at sort of fudging around um, and, you know, pretending to apply a, a standard faithfully, but then ensuring that it produces a, a more congenial result. Um, and then the question becomes, well, what what does that rationale look like? And when you when you run this, this U.S. v. Daniels case involving the guy who admitted to being a user of marijuana, which by the way, the reason marijuana is, is still a controlled substance under federal law is that it, even though it's been legalized in most of the states, it remains preposterously um, a so-called schedule one drug under uh, federal law. So it's, you know, it's, it's right up there with, uh, with fentanyl. Um, and, and so I think that, that the prohibiting somebody from owning a gun simply because they use marijuana is, is so obviously uh, inconsistent with and impossible to reconcile with the, Brum, the Bruin framework that the Fifth Circuit's ruling in the Daniels case that at least as applied to Mr. Daniels, that law prohibiting him from owning a gun because he uses marijuana, that actually might survive even if the court 
uh, reverses in the other case, Rahimi, involving domestic violence restraining order. The question is just going to be, is there enough daylight in that Rahimi opinion that you can distinguish the the, uh, unlawful users of drugs versus people uh, who are the subject of domestic violence restraining orders? Factually, you can obviously distinguish the two. The question will be, can you plausibly distinguish them legally in the wake of this Rahimi decision that we expect uh, next year from the Supreme Court? Clark Neely is Senior Vice President for Legal Studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please. And thank you for listening.